Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Once Upon a Time. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. On June 17, 2015, 21-year-old Dylan Roof did what was once thought to be unthinkable. Roof loaded a 45 caliber pistol he had received as a birthday gift and drove to a historic black church in Charleston, South Carolina. Upon arriving, he walked into a Wednesday night Bible study meeting and opened fire around 9 p.m., intent on starting a race war. According to police, eight people were found shot to death at the scene, and two others were transported to the hospital where one later died for a total of nine fatalities. Roof was later arrested the next morning in North Carolina on a routine traffic stop. Six weeks after the shooting, however, he wrote these shocking words in his jailhouse journal. Quote, I would like to make it crystal clear. I do not regret what I did. I am not sorry. I have not shed a tear for the innocent people I killed. End quote. A year later, when Ruth's death penalty trial began, he did the unthinkable again. This ninth grade dropout fired his lawyers, and chose to represent himself. In late 2016, a jury found Roof guilty on all 33 counts that were brought against him, and he was a few weeks later sentenced to death. Now, it may surprise you to hear me say this, but what I'm about to say comes straight from the Scriptures. And that is that we all share at least two things in common with Dylan Roof. First, we all deserve God's death penalty because we all have sinned against God. And second, we all have tried to defend ourselves before God at one time or another. We are not the first to do so. In the scripture text we're going to look at this morning... Jesus encounters a lawyer who also tried to defend himself out of God's death penalty. We're continuing our series in the parables of Jesus called Once Upon a Time. If you haven't done so already, I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Luke chapter 10 and to pull out the sermon notes that are in the worship folder that you received this morning. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers can loan one to you. We want you to have a copy of the scriptures in front of you so you can follow along. As you turn there, uh, let me just uh, give you a little bit of background about the parable of the Good Samaritan that we're going to be looking at today. It is uh, arguably one of the most popular parables that Jesus told and one of the most simple ones. So popular, in fact, that the term Good Samaritan is a part of our modern vernacular. Like me, I'm sure most of you have seen Good Samaritan stories on the nightly news or read it online. 
of somebody helping out somebody else who was in need. But unfortunately, the popularity of this parable is almost as common as its misuse. Some, especially those in the social justice movement, have misinterpreted and misapplied this parable of the Good Samaritan to fit their own political agenda. Despite its simplicity, one reputable evangelical scholar calls it a problem parable, and another refers to it as the most misunderstood parable. One reason why the parable of the Good Samaritan is difficult to exposit is because it's actually a story within a story. Although the hero is the Samaritan, he is only the subplot. The main plot is about a villainous, self-righteous lawyer who tries to justify himself before the Lord. Thus, our big idea for this passage today that we'll be looking at is this. Justification comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone because we cannot justify our sin. Justification comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone because we cannot justify our sin. You may remember me mentioning at the beginning of this series that we need to be careful not to overanalyze the details of the Lord's parables. Uh, Doing so would turn them into allegories in which every detail has some sort of symbolic meaning. But that wasn't the Lord's intent. Uh, This is important to remember because, interestingly, in the first four centuries of church history, uh, significant parts of the Bible were interpreted as allegory. And this caused some early church leaders to errantly teach that this parable, in this parable, the man who is robbed by thieves represented Adam, supposedly, and the robbers represented the powers of darkness, and uh, the thieves, I'm sorry, the, the, the priest represents the Old Testament law, the, the Levite stood for the prophets, and the Good Samaritan was Jesus. Again, errant teaching, looking at this as, a, as an allegory for the first four centuries of church history. Um, in this allegorical interpretation that was taught for 400 years at least, the wine that was used on the uh, wounded uh, victim of this robbery in the parable was believed to have been the blood of Christ. And the oil, the Holy Spirit, and the inn where he was taken stood for the church, and the Samaritans promised to return supposedly referred to Christ's promise to return for a second time. Thankfully, when the Lord raised up reformers such as Martin Luther and John Calvin in the 16th to 17th century, uh, they not only called the church back to preaching justification by faith alone and Christ alone, but they also called the church back to preaching the scriptures with a literal interpretation. Now that's important because preaching the scriptures with a literal interpretation restores the authority of the scriptures, and it also, in order to preach the scriptures literally, it requires getting to the author's original intent. Looking at 
For example, why did Jesus tell this story? And what was he trying to convey? Which is what we're doing each week as we work our way through this series. Another thing that literal interpretation of the scriptures requires is looking at context so that we don't strip a passage or a story out of its context. And this is especially important with this parable because one of the, one of the main causes of why it is often misinterpreted is that many people don't look at it in its context. And so in this case, if you look at your Bibles with me, we're going to have to pay special attention to what is said in verses 25 and verse 29, and then at the end in verses 36 to 37, sort of the, the two pieces of bread on the sandwich, okay? We're going to have to look at the top and we're going to have to look at the bottom to understand what's in the middle. Now Jesus, in an essence, if I could say it very succinctly and shortly, he told this parable so that we would realize our good works are not good enough to earn salvation from our sin. And so if you would look at Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke writes, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to test, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my Neighbor. So verses 25 to 29 introduce us to the villain and the main plot of this text. And it also gives us point number one on your outline, which is this the lawyer had a hard heart that loved the law. The lawyer had a hard heart that loved the law. Now, this lawyer was not a civil lawyer like many of us would think in today's culture. Instead, it was actually an expert in the Old Testament law. He may have been a Pharisee or a scribe or both, but this would include the Ten Commandments of Exodus, and he also was an expert in its applications, which were written down in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so he knew what's called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, very well. And he thought he could challenge Jesus on his knowledge of the text. And so it says, to put him to test, to the test, excuse me. This man was not a sincere seeker. That is a clue that Luke is giving us that this Jewish religious leader wanted to trap Jesus in some sort of moral dilemma or to discredit him in front of the crowd. You might remember me also mentioning at the beginning of this series that one of the reasons that Jesus told parables was to disguise spiritual truths from those who were not sincere seekers, from those who wanted to trap him and get him to say something that they could go, ah, ah, see, yeah, you heard that too, didn't you? Yeah, okay, come with me. We're going to go get the authorities. We've got a few witnesses. We heard him say this. Now we can get him arrested and shut this guy up. 
And so, this is another example where Jesus avoided that, and instead, notice what he says. Uh, what does it say in the law? So he answers the question with the question. Now, this man comes and he's asking, what shall I do to, inter- to inherit eternal life? Despite his malicious intent, the lawyer actually is asking a good question. In fact, it was a common question for Jews. It's something they often like to talk about and debate. It's the same question that the rich young ruler asked in chapter 18. He was thinking about the end of his life. What shall I do to get eternal life? It's also what Nicodemus had on his heart when he went and sought out Jesus in the middle of the night in John chapter 3. Nicodemus wanted to know, how do I get eternal life? So, Jesus responds to the question, well, what is written in the law? Did you notice how Jesus redirected his questioner back to the scriptures? This not only shows us the high view of the scriptures that Jesus had, but it also sets an example for us when we're witnessing that the answers we give about God need to come from the scriptures. So that it is God's word speaking through us instead of us kind of just guessing or making things up. This is why a lot of good evangelism programs recommend memorizing just a few verses that you can use so that you can basically quote the word and quote the Lord so it's the Lord talking and not you, not me. Notice in verse 27, the lawyer then quotes a creed from Deuteronomy 6.5 that the Jews were expected to memorize. It was known as the Shema. It was to be quoted morning and evening as part of the Jews' sacred duty. Children were taught it and taught to memorize it, and they learned it and practiced it and and, and recited it twice a day their entire lives. It was the summary of what a Jew was supposed to do in their relationship with the Lord. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So then Jesus, look, in verse 28, he says, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now there is more going on here than meets the eye. I know at first glance, it seems that Jesus is pleased with, uh, with what this man's answer was. But Jesus was actually trying to help this expert in the law see that although he knew the law of God in his head, he did not actually love the Lord with his whole heart, with his soul and his strength. And to make matters worse, this lawyer also missed the fact that to love the Lord now included loving his son, who was standing right in front of him. This is confirmed in verse 29. Notice it says, but he desiring to justify himself. Desiring to justify himself. That is not good. That is not a good thing. That is not a compliment. This lawyer's response should have humbled him into a broken confession that he had not loved God perfectly, 
that he had not been able to keep the law, that he had not been able to fulfill the Shema perfectly. Jesus' response should have caused this man to say, you know what, I've tried to do this in my own strength and I have failed. Please help me. Help, help, help me. How, what must I do? How can I have eternal life? Is there any hope for me? Or how can I know the way to the Father? As Thomas asked in John 14. But tragically, his self-righteousness gets the best of him and he, it leads him to a follow-up question. And who, who is my neighbor? Once again, there's more going on here than meets the eye. Notice how the lawyer skips the part about loving the Lord and he hones in on what Jesus' definition of neighbor is. This legalistic scribe either wanted Jesus to define neighbor as someone he had already loved or he wanted to be able to define neighbor himself so he could check off the box and make himself feel better. He wanted to be able to check off the box so that he could say, I, I have fulfilled the greatest commandment, and therefore I've, I've, I'm worthy of eternal life. Well, here's why this lawyer who was trying to test Jesus failed the test that Jesus gave him. Uh, here's letters A and B on your outline. Uh, the law was intended to reveal our need for salvation. The law was intended to reveal our need for salvation. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3.20 that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So in a similar sense to when you're in school, or those of you who are teachers, the reason there are grades is so that you can measure how students are doing. Well, in a similar sense, God had his law written down and recorded so that he could show us as sinners that we cannot live up to his moral standard, that we need a Savior to do it for us. So in other words, the Old Testament law set up the need for a Savior by showing mankind that even if God puts in writing what kind of life was needed to earn salvation, we still would fall short. And the Lord can even show us exactly why with great detail. So this is where Jesus comes in. Letter B, repentance and faith in Christ removes the need to be justified by works. Repentance and faith in Christ removes the need to be justified by works. When Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, he further clarified how Jesus solves this problem. Because the Galatians were struggling with legalism, they were buying into some false teachers from the Judaizers that you need Jesus plus something to be saved. And so... Uh, Paul writes in Galatians 2.16, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the doctrine of justification, which is what Romans 3.20 and Galatians 2.16, and also I think what this interaction with the lawyer is getting at, 
can man justify himself, defend himself before God, and get out of the death penalty? Well, here's the doctrine of justification. It's simply this. God will declare the guilty sinner as righteous through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The believer's wickedness is exchanged for Christ's righteousness. Imperfection is exchanged for perfection. It's important to understand this, though. The doctrine of justification does not say we are innocent. We're guilty. But the Lord is willing, through faith in Jesus Christ, to declare us righteous based on his good works. C.S. Lewis, in his classic tome on the Christian faith called Mere Christianity, explains this eloquently when he writes, the Christian is in a different position from other people who are trying to be good. Unbelievers hope that by being good, they can please God if there is one, or if they think there is not, at least they hope to deserve approval from good men. But the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ life inside him. He does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. And so... Here's the hope, and here's, here's a, there's, there's a lot of encouragement, I think, embedded in the doctrine of justification and in what Jesus is getting at here with this lawyer. And that is that even though we are as guilty of sin as a white man caught on security cameras, shooting up a church filled with African-American parishioners, God is willing to declare us righteous through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. We are just as guilty of our own sin, our own offenses, and all sin earns the death penalty in God's eyes. And so Jesus, what he was trying to do here in these first few verses was to wake this lawyer up so that he would see how lost he really was. And so the Lord told him a parable so that he would realize his good works were not enough to earn him salvation from his sin. Because justification comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone, because we cannot justify our sin. And so let's look at the story, starting in verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, Well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Here in verses 30 to 37, we are introduced to the hero and the subplot of this passage, of this text. And we're also told the second thing that Jesus wants us to learn. And that's number two on your outline. The Samaritan had a soft heart that loved people. The Samaritan had a soft heart that loved people. It says in verse 30, going down to Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem sits about 2,600 feet above sea level, sort of on a plateau in that region, with a lot of suburbs down in the valley surrounding it. Uh, This is why there are places in the scriptures that you probably have noticed in your devotions where sometimes it will mention in a verse they went up to Jerusalem, or they came down from Jerusalem. And it's because Jerusalem was elevated 2,600 feet above sea level. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho descends about 3,400 feet down over the course of 18 miles. And it was 18 miles of a serpentine road through rocky terrain with plenty of caves along the descent where bandits could hide. Although it was a popular road to travel, it was also a dangerous one. And so here's the point that Jesus was trying to make with the first two characters in his story, the priest and the Levite. Uh, Letter A, religion without compassion is insincere faith. Religion without compassion is insincere faith. Jesus says, by chance, a priest. Just so happens, a priest comes down the road. As he's talking to this lawyer, this scribe, this expert in the Old Testament law, what Jesus was in essence saying is, one of your peers comes down the road, one of your brothers Priests in those days served on a rotation in Jerusalem for a couple of weeks a year. And so, although some priests had homes in Jerusalem, most did not. And so when they were done with their shift, they would return to their homes in the suburbs that were down in the valleys around Jerusalem. Uh, Jericho was the closest large city and would have likely had the greatest number of priests not living in Jerusalem. And so this scenario that Jesus sets up is, it's very plausible, even though it wasn't a true story, it didn't really happen. Jesus is using real life things that his listeners could identify with. These things happened every day. Priests changed shifts in Jerusalem. Priests that live in the suburbs would descend down the mountain, 18 miles on this road, and they would go home to Jericho to be with their families until their next shift came up. Bandits frequently robbed people that were on this road because it was ideal with the kind of terrain. So the priest 
represents anyone who loves the Lord, knows the scriptures, is expected to render aid, but chooses not to. We're not told why, but he just doesn't. Jesus continues in his story in verse 32, and he says, So likewise, a Levite. Now this is interesting. Levites were assistants to the priests. They were one step down on the hierarchy, and they usually took care of the temple grounds, performed building maintenance, played worship instruments, handled security, the offering, and much more. Some of the more menial tasks. Whereas the priests did most of the teaching and uh, handled a lot of the more leadership duties. And so like the priest, the Levite would be someone else with a thorough knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures who should have helped the wounded man, but he didn't. And again, Jesus doesn't tell us why, but it's as if he's saying to this lawyer, oh, if you, just, if you thought I was only going to just focus on the priests at the top of the org chart, I'm going to also include the Levites who are their assistants as well. Just so you think nobody's left out here. And so with the first two characters, he's trying to make the point that religion without compassion is insincere faith. But then he transitions and introduces us to a third character who demonstrates letter B. Compassion with action is often proof of sincere faith. Compassion with action is often proof of sincere faith. So Jesus says, but a Samaritan comes down the road. Samaritans were descendants of a small group of Israelites who had intermarried with pagans from other Gentile lands just a couple centuries earlier. Ethnically, they were seen as half-breeds. Spiritually, the Jews saw Samaritans as apostate mutts. I don't know how else to say it. The faith of the Samaritans was sort of this hodgepodge stew of a little bit of Judaism along with some other pagan religions sprinkled in. Samaritans believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, but they rejected the rest of the Old Testament while mixing in elements of other pagan religions. The Samaritans also, a few centuries earlier, obstructed the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. That's in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 6. And... To make matters even worse, the Samaritans, as a neighboring country and rival to Israel, they liked to harbor Jewish outlaws on the run from Jewish authorities in their country. Which just added fuel to the fire of their hatred for each other. And so, in fact, in John chapter 8... A flabbergasted group of uh, Jews who lost an argument with Jesus in their frustration decided to insult Jesus by saying, quote, you are a Samaritan and you have a demon. Now, of course, to us in the 21st century here in America, we wouldn't understand the significance of that. But back then, that was like a double insult. You're possessed. Oh, and you're a Samaritan knowing that Jesus grew up in 
in a Jewish household in Nazareth. So to make the bottom line is this, Jews and Samaritans hated each other for centuries. They were like the first century Hatfield McCoys. If you could just think of anybody that you despise, maybe in your family, maybe it's your neighbor, maybe it's your boss, maybe it's uh, uh, some other ethnic group or political group. Imagine Jesus telling you this story and choosing the very worst people on the planet to you. And Jesus makes them the hero of the story. Thus, the Samaritan in this parable is, to the lawyer, the last person on earth that should be helping anybody. Ironic, isn't it, that in our culture today and on the news, when somebody helps somebody else whose car broke down on the side of the interstate, we call them a good Samaritan, not knowing in 21st century America that that was actually a country of people who were despised by the Israelites. And it was considered an insult to be called a Samaritan. And Jesus was insulted by being called one. The lawyer would have expected Jesus to make the Samaritan the victim and the Jewish traveler the helper because in Jewish minds there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. They were all bad. But being the master storyteller that he is, Jesus dropped a plot twist that this guy could not have seen coming that was intended to shock him out of his spiritual pride. Oh yeah, you think you're good? Try and hit this curveball. Have you ever heard of a good Samaritan who's more righteous than a Levite or a priest? But here's some, there's some encouragement, I think, in this part of the story, especially the parable. And I think there's some hope for us here. Uh, first of all, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, this means he has more in store for your life than just getting good grades, getting through school, earning a paycheck, or if you're retired, traveling and seeing the world. There's more he wants to do with you. He wants to use you to show his amazing love and compassion to other people that are struggling to survive in a world scarred by the fall. Another bit of encouragement or hope that I see in this parable is that if you get assaulted or break down on the side of the road and have car trouble or fall ill, the Lord could use this story to nudge a believer who is the last person on earth you would expect to get help from to get you out of a bind. What if you're the one left on the proverbial roadside, unable to help yourself? Wouldn't you want someone to set aside their prejudice their schedule, and their fears to help you.
Well, the Lord finishes this story with a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Again, there's more going on here than meets the eye. In verse 37, the lawyer responds, Well, the one, that's a key word, the one who showed him mercy. Take that, Jesus. <laughs> I passed. Thought you could stump me after I tried to stump you? Uh-uh. But here's what actually is going on. The lawyer despises Samaritans so much that he can't even name them. He can't even name the hero of the story. So Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Did the lawyer do so? Well, it doesn't appear so. Although Jesus wanted this man to expand his definition of neighbor, because that's what the debate was about, is the lawyer wanted to have a narrow definition of neighbor, people I like people I'm comfortable with, people I choose to help. But Jesus is trying to go, no, 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 no. I want you to enlarge your definition of neighbor to include anybody who needs help. That means ugly people, good-looking people, poor people, rich people, white people, black people, Asian people, tattooed people, motorcycle-riding people to non-motorcycle-riding people. It, whoever, Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Green Party people. Oh, that got hard, didn't it? But that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, no, 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 no. Stop putting restrictions or qualifiers on who your neighbor is. And he just went to this lawyer and said, you know, Samaritans, you need to make them your neighbor. You need to love them. If you see a Samaritan who needs help, Mr. Jewish scribe, you need to help him. Oh, hold on a second here. You don't understand, Rabbi. Do you know what they've done to my family? Do you know how many wrongs, how many in my family died, or, or maybe they stole property? Or I mean, this is like, again, the Hatfields and the McCoys. Generations of you did this and you did this and finger-pointing. Jesus wanted this man to expand his definition of neighbor to include his enemies. But the bigger point Jesus was trying to get across is that this man was not capable of doing the Shema, the greatest commandment, in his own strength because he's a sinner. He wasn't capable of doing it without being born again. He was not capable of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and loving your neighbor as yourself because he was a sinner. Now, most scholars agree that this scribe walked away sad, just like the rich young ruler did, and missed his chance to receive eternal life. But Jesus, he, again, he told him this parable so that he would realize his good works are not good enough to earn salvation from sin. Because justification comes by faith in Christ alone, because we cannot justify our sin. So what do, we, what do we do with this story? Here's three applications that came to mind. The first one being this, avoid the temptation of justifying yourself. It is more subtle than you think. 
One of the hardest things to do is to be saved by grace. I think this is because being saved by grace requires us admitting that we can't save ourselves, that we actually have a need. So in order to let Christ justify us, we have to admit that no matter how hard we try to be good, we can't justify ourselves. We cannot meet God's standard of perfection for entrance into his kingdom. Sadly, because of our inherited sin nature, many of us still try. Oh yeah, I'm going to be the first one. I think I can do it. But through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that burden is removed. And sometimes I see veteran Christ followers kind of slide back into this, where they start to justify themselves again. It's so subtle, sometimes they don't even see it. Like it's, This shift takes place from doing good works out of an overflowing love for Christ changes to... I, I think I need to do good works to prove I'm worth saving to Christ. It's, it's, it's a heart issue that has to be watched closely. Another thing I've seen veteran Christ followers do is to justify themselves when they're corrected, when they sin or they make a mistake. And such defensiveness is not necessary if you've already been acquitted through faith in Christ. He knows you're not perfect, and he knows you're far from it, and that's okay. If he knows it, you're good. doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Number two, blend wisdom with your mercy. Blend wisdom with your mercy. Sometimes believers with the spiritual gifts, uh, such as encouragement, giving, mercy, or service, feel it's necessary to meet every need they see. And in doing so, they burn out quickly, they run out of resources quickly, and become overwhelmed because for some reason they feel like they have to make heaven on earth. But Jesus himself didn't feel that need. In fact, during his earthly ministry, Jesus did not feed everyone, and he did not heal everyone. When he went to the Bethesda healing pool in John chapter 5, it's, it's fascinating, you should read it. It says in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, there was a multitude of invalids laying by the pools. And what would happen in this special pool with large colonnades surrounding it is that the invalids would lay around and they believed that it was just this superstition, mystic-y thing, that if the the waters stirred, they believed the spirits were stirring them, and the first one in would be healed. So there would be a mad rush to get into the pool with the belief that if you were the first one in, you could be healed. Well, Jesus goes to this place where there's a multitude of invalids sitting around this pool, and he only heals one. Just one. When the Apostle Paul wrote Timothy instructions on how to set up a benevolence fund for the church in Ephesus, he gave Timothy criteria to follow so the church's resources would not be squandered on lazy widows. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Why? Because Paul knew there are sinners who may be in a poor financial situation that will take advantage of the church's generosity. 
So wisdom and discretion is needed on how much to help, who to help, and when to help. So, for example, instead of giving cash to a homeless person on the street, you might consider buying them a meal or a drink or giving them a ride so that good stewardship is balanced with compassion so that the Lord's resources he's entrusted to you are not wasted. Number three, share the gospel when you show compassion. Why? Because the world and the devil will always welcome your compassion, generosity, helpfulness, and mercy. So long as you just don't mention Jesus. Organizations such as the Red Cross, the Peace Corps, Habitat for Humanity, etc., they were created to show compassion. But one of the reasons the church, one of the main reasons the church was created was to spread the gospel. But sadly, there are many churches that are doing the same things that the Red Cross, Peace Corps, and Habitat for Humanity would do, but they're not sharing the gospel. So those churches, in essence, are forfeiting their distinctiveness. They're no different than FEMA or the United Nations. They're helping people, sure, but they're not addressing people's biggest, greatest need which is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which is forgiveness for their sins and eternal life. So, compassion meets temporary physical needs, but the gospel meets eternal spiritual needs. Compassion may help, but the gospel gives hope. Compassion pleases people, but the gospel populates heaven. And Satan does not want that. He hates that. In other words, if the church doesn't share the gospel when the church is generous and compassionate, there'll be nothing that distinguishes the church from other volunteer organizations doing the same thing. Now, I realize some of you are going, what? (laughs) Share my faith? (laughs) I don't know about that. It doesn't have to be that hard. If the Lord gives you the opportunity to help someone in need, you should look for the opportunity to share the gospel if, if there's time, because 1 Peter 3.15 says, be prepared to give, to give an answer, to give a reason for the hope that you have. But sometimes you won't have time. Uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to be on a plane with somebody where they're buckled in the seat next to you for three hours, and yeah, i got a captive audience here, you know? Versus helping somebody out, you know, sitting outside the gas station in Bakersfield, and there's traffic, and you don't maybe have as much time to visit with them. So if you don't have time, something as simple as as you buy them a meal or give them a drink or something, you can just say, hey, Jesus Christ saved me from my sin. And he's been merciful to me so many times. I want you to know he's alive, and, and he wants to save you too. It was just something simple, just, a, just a, one or two sentences about why you're doing what you're doing can be used by the Lord. So, so that's what I mean. You can, you can go through the whole gospel presentation over the course of an hour. Just kidding. Five minutes, I think, is good. 
Uh, I preached a message on that at the end of the Colossians series uh, last year, but uh, on how to do that, how to share your faith in about five minutes. But if you don't have that, you can just tell them why you're doing what you're doing, why you're being generous, why you wanted to help them out. Well, several years ago, three men uh, named John, Mike, and Shane headed off to New York City to enjoy the nightlife. They hailed a cab, directed the driver to take them to a five-star hotel, tipped him well, and the driver drops him off. As they stood at the entrance looking skyward, the three men were impressed with this uh, luxury five-star hotel that had 29 floors. Its architecture was beautiful. So they went inside and they saw the check-in clerk at the lobby desk and and they said, give us the best room you've got available. Well, the only option left was a suite on the top floor that was outfitted with the latest luxuries. All the things that you and I would want, flat screen TVs, multiple flat screen TVs, 82 inches, you know, like total LED walls. Okay, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but hot tubs, waterfall, a kitchen, a bar, an awe-inspiring view. It was the best room in the hotel. So the men quickly decided to take the room. They paid the clerk, grabbed their key, went up to their room, the bellhop got their luggage up there. They changed clothes, and they went back down to the lobby to go check out the nightlife in New York City. And because they weren't familiar with the town, and they were a little nervous about what condition they might be in when they returned, they decided to leave their key with the clerk, and they said, we'll, we'll be back to get it. We don't want it to fall out of our pocket or anything like that. So they go and they hit the city's hotspots. Well, a few hours later, the men grew tired, and they decided to call it a night, and they returned to the hotel. At the lobby desk, they were told the elevator had broken down while they were gone. And so they would either have to take 29 flights of stairs up to their luxury suite where their clothes were, or the clerk gave them the option of staying in a standard small room with twin beds, two twin beds for three dudes, on the second floor. But the friends decided they'd take their chances on the stairs. You only live once. So they began to make their way up the flights of stairs. And the first few flights went quickly and easily as they continued to joke around with each other and reminisce about their escapades earlier in the evening. However, after they passed the 10th floor, each flight started to feel like a mile. All three men were now huffing, puffing, wheezing, and squeezing the handrail as they tried to finish the journey to the 29th floor. Exhausted from a long night and dripping with sweat, they finally got there. Eager to enjoy the luxuries that had spurred their climb up the stairs, uh, Shane was the first one to reach the top. And so he got to the door of the suite, put his hand in his pocket, and realized there was no key. So Shane turned to John, thinking John had it. But John said, no, I thought you had it. Well, then Mike was the last one up, huffing and puffing. And they asked Mike, do you have the key? Didn't you have it? 
And of course, Mike said, no, I thought you had it. And so here they are, three exhausted men. They've climbed 29 flights of stairs to get to what they thought was going to be heaven. And yet they couldn't get in. Because they had forgotten the key from the clerk. That's what it's going to feel like for those who try to earn their own salvation by doing good works. It's going to feel like they climbed 29 flights of stairs hoping they'd be able to get in only to find out they're locked out. And that's why Jesus told this parable of the Good Samaritan to remind us that our good works are not good enough to save us from our sin. And that's why justification comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone, because we cannot justify or defend our sin. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I just want to pray for those who are here today, or maybe listening online, that don't have a personal relationship with your son yet. Lord, would you please gently show them that your kingdom is so great, there is nothing they could do that would be good enough to get in. Father, please would you show them their sin, but also show them the grace and the mercy that you offer through your Son. And I ask, Lord, please, if, if it would be your will, that you might enable them to repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone for their salvation, to give their hearts to you completely. Lord, for those who have already done that, but maybe are having doubts, would you encourage them with an assurance of their faith? And Lord, for those who perhaps have been trying to earn their salvation when you've already granted it to them, would you please help change their thinking and change what's going on in their hearts so that they would do good works as an expression of love and gratitude for you, just as James tells us in James 2. Lord, we thank you most of all that you, in your great love and mercy, would take the initiative to love us while we were still yet sinners, offering up the gift of salvation to those who would receive it through faith in your Son. Lord, please encourage those who are struggling with their faith. Encourage those, Lord, who are longing for heaven today because life on earth has gotten so hard. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.